you're back at Kilgore. Tell me about that. I am back um, after four years. Uh, the company was rebought. They have some new owners. And about five or six months ago, um, they approached me and they said, look, how about coming back? And well, their exact words were, started what you finished, which kind of appealed to me. It sounded good. It was a modest way. Mm. Um, so we talked about it for a while. And yeah, I've come back as freelance creative director. But you must have felt like you'd never really let go of Kilgore in some way. Did you always feel like there was a little bit of you left in there, like you wanted to sort of finish what you'd started, as you said before? I can't get that fashion DNA out of my bones. It spans back to my childhood and all my family being involved in fashion or artisanal mm. work. So it never sort of goes away. It's kind of not my choice. Mm. And people say that when they're involved in various industries or they follow things that their family have done mm. before them. And you really can't help yourself. You just keep coming back. It's interesting you talk about your family because I do, we've talked a bit about the present, but I want to go back and talk about sort of your earliest memories of fashion. And you mentioned there that idea of clothes as, as communication. And were you quite aware of that as a young boy growing up, looking at people and, and sort of reading things about them based on how they presented themselves? Yeah, I mean, my earliest memory was walking down the King's Road with my parents. And I was, it was mid to late 70s punk. And I was very young um, and I was holding my mother's hand and my father's hand and I had flannel gray flannel trousers on very much as I was wearing today Italian chocolate suede loafers a little cashmere v-neck and I'd see these punks on the King's Road in this square where they'd all sit with brightly colored tartan and hair and I felt yeah it was fear I felt fear but the fear came um, from observing how they were dressed. Mm. So at a very early age, I understood communication through clothing or the power of that communication through clothing. And I think that's what a lot of designers maybe subconsciously try to understand, or maybe they don't understand it, or maybe they do, I don't, I don't know. But that's how I felt it really mm. clearly at a young age. And I thought you could communicate some kind of um, feeling, some people want to call it energy, through how you're dressed. And that obviously makes sense through uniform and mm. how people portray themselves. And maybe that's what led me to Savile Row, ultimately, because of the power or the energy connection. Maybe, I don't know. Mm. I'm still thinking about it. What was the point, though, where the idea of, of a career in fashion entered your consciousness? Was it when you were still at school? Were you a boy? It still hasn't, Lou. <laughs> um, I don't know if I've ever done fashion, per se. Mm. I don't know what I think I do, actually, because um, it's, it's creation and it's ideas and sometimes it manifests itself in the clothing. Well, the clothing part as a designer these days and for the last 15 years has been such a small part of it mm. because you're building um, the layers of the brand. Well, that's how I see design. I see everything. Mm. So it's the photography, it's the stationery, it's the graphics, it's the context, it's color. It's mm. not just the actual physical clothing. Yeah. It's a large part of it, but um, it's not the essential part of it. That's why um, I never became a tailor so I'm a designer kind of full stop I understand the discipline and I learned the discipline and the craft but I didn't focus on that because what I've observed over the years is that you could be one of two people in these creative sectors you could be the technical person or you could be the idea person and it's very very different do you think that the row hasn't quite adapted to that do you think that's the problem it's too focused on the precision and the detailing and not enough on 
the concepts. Yeah, no, com yeah, completely. Savile Row in 98 was archaic. Mm. Um, it was sexist, it was misogynistic, um, it was racist to a certain extent. It wasn't a nice environment. Uh, it was archaic, not everywhere, just certain elements. There were very few women in Savile Row at that time. I made a real point of employing only women when mm. I did my time at Kilgar, just to rebalance the energy, because mm. it, it can't be right. That, mm. that can't be right. And it's not, it wasn't, it's not Savile Row's fault. It's just the way that some sectors of work or industry just developed naturally over a period of time. Mm. Couture was very firmly fixed in Paris, really didn't have anything to do with London, with the exception of people like Mark Bowen and Hartnell and Hardy Amys, who were existent, but they didn't have the power and influence of the French houses in that country. I think it's something to do with culture. Mm. Um, the English way of promotion up until 10 or 15 years ago was do the work very well, be very quiet, be very discreet, be very elegant, almost as if not to be noticed. It's very and British. It is. And it's what I love about the English, to be very reserved. So to do it properly, but don't shout about it too much. Make your point when it's necessary to make your point, but don't be shouting it from the rooftops. But ultimately, when businesses and business takes over, you can't keep doing that and you have to develop and shout as elegantly as possible with everyone else. So is that what Squire was about? Let's talk about Squire because you've mentioned it in passing. Yeah, sorry, but I want to pick up. Was it about you know, shouting, saying this is what I'm about, this is my ideas? Well, I went to St. Martin's for an interview to try and get into the fashion course and I didn't get in. And then I went to try and get in on the, um, the fine art course and I, I didn't get in. <laughs> so I thought, oh, okay, I'm just going to start my own thing. And what I wanted to do with Squire, which I started in 1990, was to unconsciously, because it wasn't conscious at the beginning, is to th challenge the boundaries between fashion, art and design, because they were very, very separate. Yeah. Um, because I thought it was all the same thing. I mean, I wanted to sculpt and making clothing or looking at people or directing people to make clothing is exactly the same thing. It's a 3D object. That's all it is. You can walk all the way around. You can examine texture, uh, context. It's, it's no different from anything else. So I started Squire because there weren't any clothes, this is the second reason why I started clothes, that I wanted to wear. In 1991, everything was wide and everything was Italian. There were none of these brands. I mean, it, everything was Armani. Um, it was a really strange time. And I wanted narrow trousers, slim silhouettes that were modern. This word modern and minimalism, which everybody throws around now, really didn't exist didn't in exist, the 90s. Yeah. With the exception of what was happening in Japan and Com and Izzy and Yoji hands down, and ultimately Prada, who was mm. probably the only Italian that focused on that area, because the rest of Italy just ignored modernism through the 90s until Tom Ford arrived at Gucci. You mentioned you know, sort of trying to break down these boundaries between art and design and fashion, yeah. because Squire did so much in terms of the people that were involved in it, and t talk to me about some, some of the artists that you worked with, you know, Alan Jones, Bridget Riley. Yeah, it was serendipity. I mean, in 92, I had a studio in... Brewer Street, and along the street was Dazed and Confused started in the same year or just afterwards. And one of the first three people that knocked on my door were Katie Grant, uh, Simon Foxton and Nick Knight, and Isabella Blow. <laughs> those were the first people that came through my door. Uh, you have to remember in those days there was no internet, there was no mobile phone. It was word of mouth. And Isabella, for example, came up with Alexander McQueen, and he was in his last year at St. Martin's. 
and he came in and he was, you know, he was really shy and he sat on my couch and I had this tiny little attic in Brewer Street that was an old brothel, which Izzy loved. And she said, oh, you know, me, Alexander, I'm gonna buy his last collection and he's the future of women's fashion. Um, so those first few people that started to come through were really, really, really important. Helmut Lang was a real fan at the beginning and um, a lot of the moleskin things that I did, the covert coats and the trousers, were popularised by Helmut in later years. So I was really lucky that people that were interested, magazines would shoot something or write about something but people couldn't see the imagery or the collection for three, four, five, six months. So it had to happen by word of mouth. Mm. Um, it's obviously the, the natural progression was to get a space which I got in um, Clifford Street and um, it was an old art gallery and originally an old brothel as well. Funnily enough, there is a theme popping in <laughs> to the work. And it was next door to something called the Bucks Club, Bucks Club on Clifford Street. So I moved in and I didn't want a lot of rails. And I was interested in art, obviously. And I was specifically interested in pop art at the time. And if you remember, 93, 94, 95, 96, contemporary art hadn't made its mark. Okay, A lot of pop artists like Alan Jones, Bridget Riley, who's mm. technically an op artist, um, even Warhol to a certain extent. There are images that people had seen. There were a lot of English pop artists and non-English pop artists, people like Eduardo Paolozzi, who's very fashionable now, had been the last five or six years, that people just hadn't seen and weren't yeah. aware of. And they didn't even rate. Um, so I wanted to have a space that was part art gallery and part design gallery. So the clothing would sit in the centre and the art, and to a certain extent furniture would be on the outside. And this was before places like Dover Street yeah. Market and... Um, Colette, I think, was shortly afterwards, and Ten Corso Como was about the same time. So it was the development of this new <clears throat> spirit of aesthetic where you're mixing a lot of disciplines and saying it's okay. And I remember Cork Street, me having art in the window, and we'd sort of place things. We wouldn't hang things, I'd just place the pieces on the floor, <laughs> and they just lose their minds. And, <laughs> and one day, someone had written this handwritten note and put it on the front of the door because we were, we were by buzzer. We were so naive. It wasn't out of, um, well, I had no staff. It was me and someone else. <laughs> so you had to have a buzz on the door. Otherwise, people would come in and just steal everything. And they wrote this knot on the door. And, this, and it, the, the note, have I still got it? No, I haven't got it. It says, you're not in art land and God knows there's not enough fashion in there or something like that. Really rude on the door. And I took it down. It really upset me. But I thought, okay, well, are we hitting a nerve? Or am I doing something progressive? Or am I just upsetting people? I think I've sort of been the same for 20 years. <laughs> Do you like the fashion industry today? Let me answer that in a different way. I only have a couple of friends that are in the fashion industry. Very few fashion designers. When I, from Squire days, I'd have a lot of other designers coming to buy my clothes. <clears throat> mm. And, um, and that, of course that is fantastic. But at the same time, I didn't really understand either. Because if you're designing something, surely you want to design it so you can wear it. And if you're doing the best version, then why are you looking for something different from somebody else? Mm. I've never bought anyone else's suit. I can't imagine going to do it because I've got an idea of how I want to do it myself. Mm. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just, I think, if you're designing, if you're progressing, you've got a specific idea of what you want to wear and how you want to be seen and how um, those things should look. So... Ugh, you almost have to have a very narrow vision of what you want to do. And again, Lou, some, you know, speaking to someone yesterday, I've never been one of these designers, if, if that's the term that I am these days or before, that 
wanted the world to see, wanted as many people as possible to see what I was doing. I, I wanted a few people to see it. I wanted my peers or people that I respected to see the work. Mm. And that was always my first focus. So to send a lot of communication out so everyone can see what you're doing, I thought was just too much ego. Mm. And I still do think that way. But I think you should be more select. Challenge me on it. Well, that's, to me, that's slightly at odds, I think, with how people would see what you did on the row, which was, <coughs> I hate the term accessible, and I don't think what you did was in any way accessible, but there was definitely a desire to remove some of those um, sort of snobberies and, and, um, and hierarchies that were within the row. You yeah. know, what you did was definitely... Well, they had to come down because it was wrong. Yeah. And it was, it's called modernisation. Um, what people don't want to happen with the craft of Savile Row and you know I'm at the forefront of that because I've been doing it for 20 years is that the quality of bespoke or the craft to change mm. so you maintain that quality you don't compromise it but at the same time and everybody was doing that what I wanted to do was to move it forward mm. because there was never a contemporary tailor and actually there still isn't one and it's such a powerful message Savile Row and Bespoke. Um, it's a brand name. You say mm. Savile Row in anywhere in the world and they understand that it means a suit. But it just hadn't moved forward for such a long mm. time. And I just felt that was wrong. Talk to me about that modern design aesthetic. I know it's very hard to vocalise something so visual, but So don't make try. me. <laughs> Give it a go. <laughs> um, oh, gosh. It's the sort of clarity of feeling that you get in the pit of your stomach when you see something and you don't want to change anything. So, you is it purity? It is purity, yeah. You create something, doesn't matter what it is, and you think, ah, that's correct, I don't want to change anything. Or you go to see another designer's work or another artist's pieces or collections, or it could be anything actually, and you think, ah, that's exactly as it should be. And usually the second emotion after that is I want it, whereas where the commerce comes in, right? Um, when you don't want to change anything. And that is a really pure, instinctive reaction to something that you've interacted with, an object of design or something that's been created. So um, I'll, I'll talk about the creation process just a little bit for me because that's important. So when you're working on something, and it doesn't matter what, if you're you know, doing a letter or you're a photograph or piece of clothing, the limited amount of people that you work with, that's the most special time you're completely in the moment because no one else can interfere in what you're doing so it's really really pure um, you must feel this when you're writing you're writing something you know what you want to write no one else, no one's editing no one's going over afterwards mm. so that first part of the process whether you're doing it by yourself or with someone else or two or three people is really really pure and it feels fantastic mm. that's why creative people do what they do for that part of the process after the design has been manufactured or made as a piece of clothing I just let go or whatever and it goes and I'm, I don't mind where it goes or what people do with it because I can't I don't have a connection to it any, anymore after that 30,000 people can see what you're doing or can read an interview in a magazine about what you've said but when you read it yourself the interaction that you have with that piece is, co really is completely different. different so you don't you only feel something when you're creating it or when you see it again sorry creating is a really big word when you're working on it that action and those feelings are really interesting it's those feelings that keep you going and it's why people design 
I feel. It's interesting because it doesn't seem to me that you want people to respond to it as if it's modern. It feels like you want them to respond to it as if it's right. So there, it is about making people feel comfortable. That's a really perceptive and fantastic thank thing you. to say, Liz. Thank <laughs> you. Should we just end it there?